Father, we just thank you for this day and just this chance to come together, Lord, in your house to worship you. We just thank you for all the ways that you've been blessing our congregation, big or small, Lord. We just thank you again for the peacemakers, Lord. We thank you for just all of those that are stepping in to answer the call, God, um, whether it's to help with child care or to strum a guitar or to bring donuts or whatever it is, Lord, um, just to, to further your kingdom, God. Uh, we pray over our service today and over Joseph as he delivers our message, Lord. In your name, amen. Amen. All right, so over the... Uh... We started last week kind of a little like mini-series. Um, well, I wanted to look at what it means when people like, uh, like cheapen their faith. So what we looked at last week was we looked at people who, um, you know, are, are really concerned about like the convenience of their faith and their, their faith not, um, things maybe not happening at the right time in the right way that they want it. But this week I wanted to look at something a little bit different. So... Uh, you know, a phrase that some of you guys have probably heard before, um, and if you haven't, I mean, it's a good one, but where uh, people will say that if somebody makes a statement, but then inserts like a comma, but into that statement, then everything before the comma didn't really matter. Um, and it's something where, I mean, if somebody says like, I wrote down a couple of examples. So if somebody says like, you know, you really do, and I think you have a really great sense of style, but... Like, you know, whatever's going to follow is going to mean that you absolutely do not have a good sense of style. If somebody says, like, I'm on your side, but they're probably not going to be on your side. I always like to kind of uh, point out people who uh, notoriously, I feel like especially in uh, you know more rural areas, you hear a lot of people say things about, like, you know, I got real tough skin. But I'm like, OK, you don't have tough skin. You have very, very thin skin. Um what if somebody says, I trust you? And they say, I trust you, but they're about to insert some amount of doubt. You know, what if somebody says, I love you, but doesn't it seem to cheapen that sense of love? Well, this right here is exactly how a lot of people's relationship with Christ ends up playing out in practice. So I'm not necessarily talking about maybe where their heart is, but where their heart seems to actually meet the real world, you end up having a lot of these comma, but statements, you know, um, you know, I, I really, I, I, I really love Jesus, you know, but at the same time, you know, I got to deal with all these practicalities of the world. You know, you see this a lot of times when people have to deal with things in the Bible that maybe are, um, don't really jive with the way that the rest of the world sees things. Um, you know, one of those areas I know that, uh, I've, I've had a number of conversations with cause I kind of struggle with it myself is, you know, uh, sometimes you'll hear people will sit here and say, uh, you know what? I teach, I heard somebody who was a pastor say this. They were like, you know what? I, um, you know, I want my kids, I want my kids to be real, you know, to, to not, not pick fights. I, you know, I want my kids to be real peacemakers and everything. But, you know, if somebody says something like this or somebody does this or that, you know, I want, I want to make certain that they know that they can turn around and, you know, pop whoever the other individual is. They, they can defend themselves. Um, and it's funny because you look at that and you go like, okay, cool. Well, can you tell me, uh, can you tell me where in the Bible it says that? I'll wait. 
It's not in there. It's super inconvenient, right? And it's hard because we wrestle with these things, especially since the state of the world that we live in is one that in so many ways, more often than not, was crafted by kind of the flawed logic, flawed knowledge, flawed wisdom, and kind of sinful behaviors of mankind. And so what that means is that any attempts to take the things of God and to merge them perfectly and harmoniously with the world simply aren't going to work. You're going to end up with some conflicts. Now, similar to what you know, we were just talking about, you know, kind of earlier today with the idea of being a peacemaker and everything. That's something where, you know, we're called to deal with these conflicts in a way that is somewhat harmonious, but that, that doesn't mean just like kowtowing or bending a knee to whatever the world tells us. We have to avoid having a relationship with Christ that looks a lot like saying, I'm going to follow you, but X, Y, Z. Because if we do that, then everything that we're saying prior to that comma, we're really compromising. This is something that you can see in the kind of the, the often cited story about, um, you know, the individuals who approach Jesus and want to follow him. So kind of a shorter version of this story you can find in Matthew. But uh, in Matthew 8, verses 18 through 22, we read this. Um, it says, when Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to cross to the other side of the lake. Now, take a pause here. This is kind of after one of these moments where, you know, there's kind of like, Thousands of people, big miracles, all that kind of stuff. And he sees all of the people that are here. And so he's looking at his disciples. He's looking at his actual followers and he's giving them orders saying, we're going to go over there. Now, for those of you guys who are real deep in your Bible studies, you'll know some neat stuff happens in the process of going from here to there. But what I want to focus on here today is that he's looking at his followers and giving them the order that we're going to go over to the other side of the lake. Um, and it's kind of interesting. We're talking about the Sea of Galilee, and if you ever see pictures of it, like in, in your heads, you see illustrations of a sea, and you think of the open ocean. It's, it's a lake. You can see the other side from like one shoreline. So they're over there, and they're looking, and they're saying, we should go over there. So he's telling his disciples that. So at this moment, when he's looking at his followers and kind of separating his followers from the crowd, which is kind of an interesting thing, uh, you end up seeing this, people coming out of the crowd and coming up to Jesus saying, well, I want to follow you. Uh, verse 19, then a teacher of the law came to him and said, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, foxes have dens and birds of the nests, uh, and birds have nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. Another disciple said to him, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus told him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Interesting thing here. And I know I alluded to this story last week, but in this story, what you end up seeing is uh, Christ inserting the comma but that he understood was in the hearts of these individuals. So he had individuals who were coming up and were saying the right thing, you know? Their external mode, their, their external actions look like they were on board with the whole Jesus thing, you know? So they're saying, I'm going to follow you. But Jesus sees into the hearts of men. He sees into what our motivations are. And one of the things that we talked about last week was that God doesn't just want us to do the right thing. He wants us to do it with the right motivation. Because if it simply came down to just doing the right thing, that almost kind of implies that somehow God needs us to do the right thing. God doesn't need us to do jack. He doesn't need us to do anything. God wants us to have hearts that are bent towards him. And what that means is that the external actions start becoming a lot less important than the heart with which we do the things that we do. And so Christ could see into the hearts of these individuals who wanted to be a part of the followers, not a part of the crowd, and looked and said, there's a comma but that's going to keep you from truly being what I need you to be. In the two instances that we see in here, he's talking about 
you know, having a place that you can actually, uh, you know, some amount of rest and refuge and all that. This is where we get into, you know, this uh, kind of often cited, you know, fact that following Christ does not mean comfort. Following Christ does not necessarily mean prosperity. It's what I feel is the biggest flaw in kind of the prosperity gospel type thinking that people have sometimes. You know, this idea of like, you know, well, if there's something you need, all you need to do is to name it and proclaim it. You know, when people do all that, the problem is that that's putting an awful lot of focus on something that Christ himself seems to tell his followers, this is not guaranteed. You are absolutely not guaranteed to get what you want. Uh, even the idea of rest, the most basic of thing that we feel like we are somewhat entitled to is something that Christ says, you're not entitled to this. You know, it's kind of funny because I remember at one point in time, Meredith and I years ago, you know, we're talking about kind of the fact that, uh, uh, you know, like every year growing up, like both of us, like our families went on vacations and everything. We're kind of hitting a point where just kind of due to work and family stuff and all that, we were like, you know, I, I, I think we're not going to be able to, you know, I, I don't know if we're going to be able to swing going off for a while and having this little thing. And on the one hand, it's something that maybe we've done every single year. Like we've always had this amount of vacation. You've always had that time to get away and all that. But then on the other hand, you stop and you think about it for a second and you go, what says I'm entitled to this? Like what says that I'm entitled to, to having time to get away, to stop working? I mean, if you turn around and you just, I mean, think for one second, I know this gets kind of like big, you know, world citizen thinking and everything, but just imagine like if you hadn't have been born here in this day and age in this country, then it probably is unlikely that it's more likely than not that you would not have any kind of vacation every single year, uh, that you might be working for more than five days a week. There's so many of these things that we are absolutely not entitled to, but it's when we kind of get the blinders on and start just thinking about our own lives, we can start kind of tricking ourselves into thinking like, but this is something that, this is something I should have. It's right for me to have this. And then because of that, we get really mad and agitated when we can't get it. This transitions into our spiritual life because sometimes you get tired of doing the right thing. Sometimes you just get a little annoyed at trying to be the good little Christian kid that's always doing the right thing and not doing the same stuff everybody else is doing. You feel like you get tired of sitting here and showing up, you know, even when you feel like you have, you know, a whole brood of toads in your throat and stuff like that, that, you know, I feel like I, I, I don't want to do this. I feel like I'm entitled to a break. And what you find out is that, uh, it's going to sound very like convicting, but like you start finding out like I, you're not really entitled to that. God, through his blessings and his mercy, may have blessed us in our lives with the opportunity to have breaks and vacations and things like that, but you're not entitled to it. That becomes especially important to keep in mind when life throws a curveball at you. Because when things get hard and you go through great trials in your life, it very easily uh, get tempting to fall into a place of saying, this is unfair. How could God do this to me? How could God rob me of this opportunity or of this health or of this uh, uh, way of life or whatever it may be. And we start thinking that, but the only reason why you could possibly be mad in that sense is because you feel like you're entitled to something. And what you end up finding out is that once you realize your identity in Christ, you realize that nothing is entitled. Everything that is good is a blessing. And when you start looking at life that way, instead of focusing on the things that you don't have and the things that you've been denied and the things that you don't have access to, instead you start focusing on the things that you have. You start focusing on the manifest blessings that God has placed in your life every single day. It's the whole reason why when 
uh, in, in, in my mind, you know, we're kind of starting out with, you know, trying to think about like, well, you know, how's our, our church, uh, kind of doing things and how do we evolve and all that. And one of the reasons why I didn't necessarily want to start church services with kind of what sometimes you'll see in other churches, which is like, what are all the prayer requests? Because sometimes I feel like what can happen is that we start looking at our relationship with God and our relationship with prayer as this is my opportunity to have a gripe session for me to tell God all the bad things going on in my lives and the lives of people around me. And these are things that we need prayer for. And they might be done with the best of heart. Going back to the heart is important. So I'm not trying to criticize that, but sometimes what gets lost in that conversation are all of the blessings that Christ has put in our lives. We start forgetting the fact that God has done so many good things I think about, and I know that I put something on social media last week about, you know, Meredith and I having kids, but I remember when, you know, we were going through kind of before we had told a lot of people that we went through this period of time of miscarriage in our lives. I remember another individual, a mother that was uh, telling us about their kids. It was just, just griping, just like super annoyed and just said, you know what? Oh, I just can't stand it. They just, they're driving me so crazy and they're doing this and they're doing that. And I remember that moment. I said, I wish I had a kid to get annoyed at right now. Because we had just experienced this thing and it was, it was kind of one of those things that I am sure, I am positive, 110% that if I had not had that experience, that little experience of almost heartache, that I would probably be that exact same person. I would probably be the exact same person that's getting super annoyed and that, you know, uh, uh, sits here and gets super wrapped up in what I'm not able to do because now we gotta do something with the kids or whatever. But, you know, it changed my perspective, understanding that going through that, I'm not entitled to anything. Even my own family is something I have because God has blessed me with these people in my life. And so because of that, if I have nothing else in my life, God has blessed me tremendously beyond what I am owed. So you start looking at things this way and you can kind of see that there is this sense that we're not deserved anything. And because of that, whatever we do have, we should be happy with. When you look at the other individual who talks about a lot of the stuff with his family, I know we've broken this story apart before that when he talks about burying his father, it's not... It's not just a matter of saying my, my father just died and I need to go do a funeral. It has more to do with cultural stuff and he feels he's entitled to an inheritance and all that. But it just continues to go back to that idea that we're not owed and we're not entitled to anything. Where that connects with what we're talking about today is that when we feel like we are entitled to certain things, we are more willing to compromise what we feel God has called us to do. We're more willing to cloud otherwise very clear instruction that we feel that God has placed on our lives by what we think is reasonable. The one phrase that I grew to hate in so many different like committee meetings and teams and things like that when it came to, you know, working with churches and working on church groups and whatnot is when people would say, well, you know, I know what you're saying that the Bible says with this and that. And yeah, we got to have faith, comma, but we need to have discernment here. We need, we need to we need to think this through. We need to see if this aligns with you know how how we think we should do things with our strategy and all that. And I hated that so much because it's that sense of compromising what you feel God has put in your life as an otherwise very clear demand signal. And instead of saying, okay, this is what I feel God has called me to do, how how are we gonna do this? Instead, you start shifting towards, well, God called me to do this, but but. Let's see maybe how much of that we can do and, and, you know, to be reasonable. This is something that you actually see in the life of Saul. When I'm talking about Saul, I'm talking about like King Saul, not, not Saul who later become Paul. Saul is an interesting character because so often in the Bible, he is kind of treated as like just an abject bad guy. 
Um, and a lot of times it's funny. I've worded it this way that like, I feel like Saul gets a bad rap. And when I say that he gets a bad rap from us, he gets a fair rap from God, but from us, he gets a very, very bad rap because in reality, Saul was acting exactly like we act. And I don't mean that in kind of a hyperbolic rhetorical kind of way. I mean, in a very literal sense, like the way that he interpreted what God told him to do was very reasonable. I mean, just consider who Saul is. Okay. Saul's this guy that, uh, was kind of, you know, uh, uh, you know, physically, he's kind of a good statured individual. He was tall. In those ways, I don't see myself in him. But he was an individual who was only named king because the people of Israel said, God, we want a king. Before you had Saul, the reality is you have a bunch of judges. You know, God, God said, you don't need a king. I'm your king. You don't need a king. So I'm going to get, raise up these prophets that we'll call judges who will help to interpret my law, but I am the king. All edicts come from me and all law comes from me. We have a whole book that talks about this that's called Judges. So God said, you don't need a king. I am your king. And what happened is the people of Israel turned around and said, but look at our neighbors. They have a king. They have a king. They have a king. I want a king. I want a king like they have a king. So I want a king. So God said, fine, I'll give you a king. And almost literally uh, through the prophet Samuel, like points in a field and goes, there's a guy on a horse. He's your king. And that's how you got Saul. Uh, I'm being a little facetious, but that's not too far from how it went. Uh, and so in this whole thing, you have Saul who ends up kind of having this role thrust upon him, right? Okay, so he didn't entirely seek out to become a king. So he was an important person, that horse and all that, but he, he, he didn't seek the office. He didn't run for it or anything. So it's kind of thrown in his life. So you go, okay, cool. Well, that happens to a lot of us, right? We have things that we didn't necessarily intend on being exactly where we are in life. It's like things just kind of worked out that way. And so sometimes you kind of have, to have this sense of like, well, God, you put me here. So I assume you want me to go do a thing and use my own knowledge and all that, right? Okay. So that happens, and then you end up having Saul who goes through and he does this type of compromising that we're talking about. He goes through and he starts doing things that to him make perfect sense, and they're totally reasonable. And I think most of us today, if you kind of take out all the cultural stuff of the fact that it's like, you know, millennia in the past and everything, you take that away and you just think about like the human nature side, and we would almost read the story and, you know, remove that people tell you he's the bad guy, and you'd go, yeah, he did the right thing. He sounds like he, did, he totally did. He totally did the appropriate thing here. What's what's this God guy picking on him and getting mad? And so let's read about how this catchy plays out and everything, and see what we can kind of unveil about the nature of compromise. So if you go to First Samuel chapter fifteen, there's there's a few things we're going to read in here. So First Samuel uh, chapter fifteen, starting so one through three, we see this. This is kind of getting towards the end where God's about at the point of saying, "Nope, fed up with you." So it says, Samuel, the prophet of God, said to Saul. I am the one the Lord has sent to anoint you king over his people Israel. So listen now to the message from the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they, when they wayland, uh, wayland them as they came up from Egypt. Now go attack the Amalekites and totally destroy all that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle, sheep, camels and donkeys. Now, when you hear that, that sounds like a bit much. Uh, that's basically genocide at that point. And a lot of people who will uh, critique the Bible and like to insult Christians and all that will actually use samples like this to say like, well, this is, this is, this is genocide at this point. And that's kind of one of these areas where, you know, again, there's like a whole 
cultural historical thing we could get into about like how ancient civilizations worked. But what you have to understand about these people that God is talking about is these are a people that for generations, like many generations had basically made Israel their genocidal target that they wanted to take out the Israelites. And they mention in here uh, the, the, the Amalekites who attacked the people of Israel when they came out of Egypt. When Israel was at its weakest, the Hebrew people going through the desert, these people tried attacking and harassing multiple times these people of Israel to totally annihilate them and wipe them off of the face of the earth. So, you know, as we say, two wrongs don't make a right and everything, but for what it's worth, the Amalekites have been genocidally trying to take out the Hebrew people for quite some time. And eventually, just when God knew, God knows his plan, right? He knew he's going to raise up these people, you know, the line of David that's eventually going to lead to a Messiah and all that. He's looking at this and saying, my plan is to raise up this Messiah through this line of David. And that means these genocidal attacks against my people must stop. So, we're going to wipe them off the face of the earth. So that's what he does. He tells them you need to totally wipe them off the face of the earth. So we move on with that. We see how Saul enacted this direction because that's pretty darn clear. Once you get to the point that you're saying kill men, women, and children, livestock, leave nothing of the earth, uh, uh, of any remembrance of these people, like that's pretty crystal clear. So we move on to verse 7 and we see how Saul ended up enacting this. Uh, and what you're going to see is he made reasonable accommodations, but his reasonable accommodations, ironically, were not the uh, spare women and children part. So verse 7, it says, Then Saul attacked the Amalekites all the way from Havilah to Shur, near the eastern border of Egypt. Don't worry about the places. It's places near Egypt. He took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive, and all his people he totally destroyed with the sword. But Saul and the army spared Agag and the best of the sheep and cattle the fat calves and the lambs, everything that was good. These they were unwilling to destroy completely, but everything that was despised and weak, they totally destroyed. So the totally reasonable thing that Saul did here is he has this big army, right? And you can keep in mind, these aren't professional armies. These are people who left their homes and their, their own livestock and things like that. These people got to be paid. These people have to be compensated for the fact that they, you know, some of them, in, in a very literal sense, may actually starve if they don't have something coming out of this to help help to effectively reimburse their time away from their homes. So he makes a reasonable thing. I know God told me to destroy everything, but look, let's be reasonable here. Let's use our minds. We need to see if this aligns with our structure and corporately how we set things up and everything. So we're going to spare some of these people, okay? It makes sense. It just makes sense, okay? So what's funny is that we look at this story, 2020 hindsight, and go, God gave you clear direction, and you tried doing what you thought made sense and tried compromising that message to do something that was wise in your own eyes. That feels dumb. And we can say that today, but it's important to keep in mind that Saul honestly believed that he was correct. Going on to verse 16, we see, uh, enough, Samuel said to Saul. Let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. Tell me, Saul replied. Samuel said, although you were once small in your own eyes, did you not become the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and he sent you on a mission, saying, go and completely destroy those wicked people, the Amalekites. Wage war against them until you have wiped them out. Why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord. Here's the kicker. You see how Saul feels about this. He says, 
But I did obey the Lord, Saul said. I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought back Agag, their king. The soldiers took sheep and cattle from their plunder, the best of what was devoted to God, in order to sacrifice them to the Lord your God at Gilgal. What I love so much about this in context of how we act as Christians is A, the fact that Saul honestly believes that he did the right thing. Like, I'm not saying he's making it up to himself or anything like that. I'm saying if you were to hook him up to a polygraph and interrogate him for hours and everything, he believes that he did the right thing. This is where you can start seeing the flaw in people saying things about, well, I just don't think that's right. I'm sorry, this divine creator of the universe doesn't care about what you just think is right. If he tells you to do this, go do that. If he tells you don't do that, don't do that. It's pretty clear. It might be super hard to do, but it is very clear. So you can see he honestly believes that he did the right thing. But the other thing that's interesting in here is how he tries turning it into, but I did it for Jesus. You know, there's kind of like this, uh, kind of like running gag you used to have with some people where whenever somebody wanted something, uh, but like they couldn't rationalize having it, they would say, oh, well, I'm going to do it for Jesus, you know? And so like we joke around and say like, oh, I think, uh, I think Meredith doesn't want me to get another rifle, but, um, you know, if I got another rifle, I could probably relate to some people who are like, like hunters or gun people or whatever, and, uh, maybe witness to them for Jesus. So I need a new gun. Like, and I would sit here, we, we, we play this gag, you know, but, even though we were joking about it, uh, it's important to note that just because somebody does something with a Jesus theme doesn't make it right. And I think that that is something that is especially pertinent to our society, especially when we start talking about the state of churches, because there are a lot of people who do an awful lot of things invoking the name of Jesus, but doing it for their own reasons. Saul wasn't disobeying God for the benefit of God. Saul was disobeying God for the, be for the benefit of himself. If you really want to be magnanimous about it, you'd have to say that maybe, maybe he did it for the benefit of his people. Maybe. We can't really see that in what's in here. But you can tell he didn't do it for the benefit of God. But yet, he's able to say here at the very end, the soldiers took sheep and cattle from the plunder, the best of what was devoted to God. So in other words, yeah, I may have done this, but, but look, look at what it allowed me to be able to do. And I feel like that's how that can really connect to our world today is, we're very good at rationalizing things. We can rationalize any act that we want because the reality is that most of life is very complicated. So if you want the message of some life event or some decision you've made to be something that you've rationalized very well, you can twist just about anything to sound like it's kind of Jesus-y. You know, you can make anything sound like it's something that's kind of a noble cause. You have to be careful when somebody tries saying like, but I'm doing this for the church or, but I'm doing this for Jesus or, you know, I'm doing it because I'm looking out for the best interest of, of, you know, our congregation, our community here. You know, just because somebody says that doesn't make it right. And that is a critically important thing to bring up. I know I brought up, you know, in weeks past and I, I brought it up with teenagers all the time. Uh, the fact that I think everybody should question everything, especially that they hear from someone who says they're a religious leader. Now, the reason why I can so confidently say that is because I'm very confident that if I am doing things that are rooted in truth and rooted in the scriptures, that if you question it, I 
sincerely believe you will come to the same or pretty darn close conclusion to what I came out of. If you come to something different, maybe I did something wrong because I am also a flawed human being. But you should question everything, but question it honestly and question it as something that you actually pursue what the truth is that God is speaking to you in a certain moment. Because there are people who will try to tell you that they are doing something because of Jesus or because of a godly reason, but it is in fact because of something that benefits them or benefits their pride or benefits something they feel that they're a part of. So there is an amount of healthy skepticism that you need to have, not out of a sense of hate and disdain for other individuals, but out of just a very plain factual recognition of the fact that we are flawed individuals and even we ourselves can have our vision obscured by our own actions and our own desires. So in doing that, we have to be careful not to rationalize our own selfish behaviors because we've tricked ourselves into thinking we're doing it for Jesus. But then we also have to not be so quick to just simply blindly accept what somebody else says simply because they say a magical cocktail of phrases that play real nice when you say them in a sermon or say them on Christian radio. You can see the outcome of what uh, God thinks about this compromising where right there in verse 26, God speaks through Samuel and says, uh, uh, but Samuel said to him, I will not go back with you. You have rejected the word of the Lord and the Lord has rejected you as king over Israel. That cuts so deep when you consider once again that in this moment, Saul believes that he is being treated unfairly because he's doing what God wanted him to do. He's doing good work. He's following God's actions and everything. And I mean, yeah, he had to, we had to be, um, come on, had to be reasonable about things. But he's doing what God wanted him to do. And because he's doing that, you can imagine that the very last thing he probably expected is for a mouthpiece of the Lord to come up to him and say, I've rejected you. I mean, I imagine what would I would feel like, like how dejected I would feel if somebody walked into this church and came up to me and just said, you've been blinded into thinking you're doing everything right here, but you are wrong and God has rejected you because of it. It would be devastating. But, you know, it would also be something that would become even more devastating if I didn't acknowledge or I didn't have like my heart, my mind prepared for the fact that I am still a sinful individual. Just because I may say some nice things, just because I may know things about the Bible doesn't make me perfect. And in the same way, we all kind of find ourselves in a situation where we sit in church and we listen to messages or we have the Christian music and all that kind of stuff. And so sometimes we can kind of fool ourselves into thinking we're in this false, uh, false safe zone or we're kind of on this pedestal where, you know, yeah, I, I know this stuff. I hear all this stuff and I'm, I'm nodding my head up and down, but, but I really, but, but I know the Bible. I mean, I'm a little bit better than kind of your average bear out there, you know, so, so I'm good. So you can see there's kind of this sense of humility that needs to continue existing that even individuals who approach the Savior themselves and say, I will do anything for you. God sees their hearts. Jesus knows the comma, but statements that are going to cause them to compromise what God is going to ask them to do. It is the sense of total humility that has to exist in order for us to fully be leveraged by God to do the things that he's called us to do. Now, it's a level of humility that most of us will, I think, probably never be able to truly hit. There's always a sense of pride to everything we do. It's one of the reasons why any time that I've had a, a personal conflict with another individual or when uh, you know I'm talking between people who are having conflicts with people, uh, there's kind of this little, like I don't want to say mind game, but it's almost like this little mental exercise I like to kind of play with them where I'll say, okay, tell you what, 
Let's accept that the other person in this conversation, or if, if it's me talking, you know, to somebody, let's assume that I am totally fessing up to everything that I did wrong. In this situation, can you imagine one thing that you did wrong? And it's funny how often you get into these disagreements with people, you get into these fights with people, or, and what ends up coming out of it is that when you, when you issue that challenge of, if I admit to everything that I've done wrong here, can you admit to one thing that maybe you've done? And how often you get people say, no, I don't think I have. And that's where you can kind of see it's that, it's that little false sense of pride that resides within all of us, that we are very good at convincing ourselves that we are doing things correctly. But it's because we tend to have this attitude of, uh, in this perspective of what seems wise in our own eyes. Saul wasn't doing something just because he was an evil villain in a superhero movie wringing his hands saying, ah, but I'm going to take this for myself. He did something that was very common for his day and age. Some, some, some examples I can think of, he was actually being a little bit more humble than what other cultures would do in that day and age. So he was doing the right thing. Comparatively speaking, he was being pretty pious. People would look at him and call him a religious person. But yet he was compromising what God had called him to do. And there's a message there for all of us to take away, to be careful to avoid that temptation to rationalize in our own hearts what we feel like God has called us to do because of what inconveniences us, because of what we may personally disagree with, whatever our own biases may be. God so often gives us clear instruction on things. I know that sounds funny to say because, you know, God doesn't kind of give us like the actual, like, here's literally like your game, your your 20 point plan for your life here today in 2023. But when you look in different situations, you really break down the different things that we experience and the disagreements that we have. It's funny how often you can actually crack open your Bible and look at it and go, you know, there actually is something in here that's reasonably clear cut. It may be just that it's very hard to do. And because it's hard, sometimes we are very quick to hit that ejection seat and say, I'm just going to do some version of this that maybe feels good for me. Colossians chapter 2, verse 8 through 10. I end up reading this. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spirit, spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. That idea of not letting your minds being molded by the things of this world is the thing that we struggle with the most. Because we all have this recency bias of the things that we're around, the things that we're going to go home to right now and that we're going to go home and deal with or have to schedule this week or on Monday or that we're going to have to prepare for for Wednesday or whatever. We are conditioned to bias ourselves towards being more concerned for those things than we are for things that exist in eternity. And so the easy answer, the answer that a lot of Christians will take is to then take look at their lives and say, well, okay, so I need to do what God told me to do, but let, me, but let me just get over this thing right here. Let me just get over this thing as well as I can, and then, and then I'll pay more attention to God once I get to that point. You know, we look at things that we struggle with in our lives and say, I'll get over this thing I struggle with, but you know, I just need to get past this point. I just need to get past this milestone in my life, or past this decision, and it'll be easier for me to deal with it. You know, or we get, you know, in the midst of some struggle. You know, this, this is something where with, uh, uh, I know with Marith and I, both, both when it came to attending church regularly and then when it came to like giving to the church, we both acted this way where 
uh, you know, at first it was like, well, you know, we just got out of college and everything. And, you know, we're, we're showing up to like the worship services, but like, do I really need to go to Bible study? Like, I don't really need to go to Bible study. I'll go, we'll go to, we'll start going to Bible study more, more frequently when we get past this point. Or we just have these things going on in our lives, you know, and you're always going to have a reason to push that thing down the road. When it came to giving, you know, we always kind of looked at that and said like, well, you know, we, we can give, but you know, right, right now it's really hard, right? I mean, nobody blames us. Nobody's going to blame us. We just started out. We have like one income. I'm not, nobody's going to blame us if we don't give any money right now to, to ministry or the church or missions or anything like that. So look, let me, let's, let's just get past this milestone in life. Let's get past this moment and then maybe we can do something. What you find out is that that moment never comes. So, so long as we've opened up our hearts to the option of compromise, I, it's funny how we never find a point where the compromises run out. We're always going to have something that we can rationalize gives us some kind of basis to deviate from what God tells us. The phrase I've used in the past is, if you really don't want to do a thing, you're always going to have an excuse not to do a thing. If you really don't want to have time for something, you're always going to have other things that you can throw out there to say, I don't have time for it. If you really don't want to have energy for something, you're always going to have other things in your life that you can say deserve your energy. And so the only thing that you can really do, that you can latch onto to cause you to overcome that tendency is to mold your mind not by what the world tells you, but to be conformed by what Christ has done in our lives. Be conformed by the calling that Christ has given us. In so many ways, once I, you know, in my own life, I feel like I kind of went from just kind of helping out with the church a little bit to saying like, okay, I'm gonna, I'm taking this seriously. I want to be a, I want to be a minister now. I want to be a pastor now. In a weird way, it almost became easier because suddenly that forced me just by role to orient my mind towards like this is what I do now, and it became a little bit easier. But that same thing can exist without a title and without a career change and all that kind of stuff. We need to conform our minds according to what God has called us to do. And when we do that, what we're going to find out is that suddenly all of the explanations we have for compromise don't seem to really make all that much more sense. They don't seem profitable. They don't seem wise. Because we're basing our decisions, we're basing our actions, we're basing our heart, not on what makes sense to us, but on a, a, a an almost blind trust of what God has called us to do, suddenly we don't have the same roadblocks that we think we once had. So the last thing that I have in here that I did want to share with you guys was I, I kind of asked myself, like, what are the hollow or deceptive philosophies that it seems like this world tries to throw at us? What are the different things that the world wants to kind of put in front of us in order to convince us that, you know, you can make reasonable accommodations for what God has called you to do. OK, just, you know, blend the two together a little bit. What about expectations of family accomplishments and activities? That's something that, you know, uh, when, you know, we're kind of talking about like the, 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 the sports thing and all that, you know, being able to like balance those two things. That's huge. And I know that that's something that that's a, a big struggle that like Meredith and I in the coming years are going to experience more and more and more as our kids get older. That, yeah, there's expectations about what families can do, you know, especially when you're in a tight knit community, whether your family induces them on you, whether kind of your peers induce them on you. You know, if you're a cool kid or you're a put together family or whatever, you're doing these certain things for your family. And so when those things come in conflict with the fact that, oh, but I need to spend time either with myself, with my family, helping to give them Jesus, or I need to get them involved in ministries or church things or whatever to, to help them get Jesus. It's so easy to put down the side burner because society doesn't have an expectation that you do that. 
What about just family expectations? We talked about a little bit there, but what about what other people in your own family think you need to do? What, you know, if it's something where you look at and you say, well, my family would never do it, you know, and especially if you are married or, or dating or whatever, you know, then, you know, maybe, maybe it's your, your in-laws who you love very much. I love my in-laws. Maybe it's your in-laws who have expectations for you and your kids and what they're going to do. Well, those family expectations can be things that, once again, nobody's going to blame you for saying, like, look, this is something that, you know, it's been a family tradition. It's something that we kind of identify with, so we need to always, you know, go and do this thing. Or, you know, and because of that, you know, I can't spend time doing X, whatever. I can't, I can't go on that mission trip because we're expected to, you know, go, go do this whatever kind of trip as a family. We have vacation that week. I can't possibly, you know, go do, go do some service project. Family expectations can be things that pull us away from what we feel God is calling us to do. Community ideals of acceptable or unacceptable behavior. You know, I'm trying hard to avoid some of these landmine issues, but things that we see in society, you know, mentalities and philosophies that the world wants to throw at us that we know may be counter to what God wants in our lives, what God wants in our families, what God wants for our own persons and our minds and our bodies. These are things that we struggle with every single day, and the temptation is so strong to compromise the truth that we have on the basis of what we feel the world is telling us is acceptable. We have to find a way in our own lives and in the real world to approach and to address people who may disagree with us without compromising what God is telling us is true and is the truth. It's one area where you can see so many churches and so many denominations today beginning to fall away on the basis that well, things are becoming harder for us and we may be losing members and losing tithes and, and we need to find a way to resonate more with you know, the modern world and the modern society. It's people who are more than willing to compromise what God has said is truth because they want more individuals in their seats. We have to avoid that. We have to avoid that in a way that is firm but is loving. And the last thing is personal goals and pride. We all have things that we want in our lives. Some of these are things that are ambitious, that are professional. Some of these are hobby-based. Some of these are community-based. Some of these may be recreational things that we just aspire to be able to do. And once again, we can have all these desires and all these goals and all these motivations in our lives. That's fine. If you want to go do that thing, do that thing. You want to play that sport, play that sport. You want to you know, pursue that thing in your career, go pursue that thing in your career. But understand that what God has called you to do cannot be compromised. And if God has called you to do something and you are faithful to that calling, he will provide a way. He'll either provide a way, given the things that you're doing, or he will communicate to you that maybe that's no longer a thing that you can do in your life. I look at, you know, the situation that we've been in with this church right here and, um, you know, all the uncertainties that I've kind of personally had as we've been like planning this church and everything about, uh, you know, how I'm going to be able to manage everything. And, it's funny how God has always been able to provide a way to put, to put people there, to give you that burst of energy, to give you that whatever that's needed to make it happen. And the moment that I look at what God is calling me to do and it doesn't jive with something I'm wanting to pursue or I'm wanting to do elsewhere, maybe that's the thing that needs to go on the chopping block. Not here to sit here and say that by any stretch of the imagination that, uh, you know, hey, look at me, I'm, I'm this example of this thing. But... I am trying to communicate that 
I do know what it is to have things that you think are a very big part of your life and to have to put those things on the sides and sacrifice those things because you feel God has called you to something greater. And I'm also here to tell you that that payoff is so worth it, even if it seems hard at the time. So in your own life, you have to challenge yourself and ask yourself, what are the things that you are willing to compromise the calling of God in order to do so that your life can be a little bit easier, a little bit more convenient, a little bit smoother? What are those things and what do we need to do in order to overcome them? At the end of the day, there's no magical words that I can say that anybody else can say. There's there's nothing that, no book you're going to open up necessarily that's going to inherently make you, you know, kind of see the light a little bit differently and, and go in a different direction. At a certain point in time, we have to be willing to stay, take stock of all the things that we feel define us and identify who we are. And we have to measure all of those things against the truth and the calling of God on our lives. And we have to determine what is more important. That decision is yours, and it's a decision that you get to make. It's part of the blessing of being able to follow a God that doesn't treat you just like a robot that's been wound up and is going to do whatever he demands. God could demand it, but he wants your heart. He wants to show you a love unlike anything that you've seen in the past. But in order to do that, we have to love him back. So as we go through the days and the weeks, as we go through the, the rest of this sermon series, I would challenge you to think about what the things are in our lives that would cause us to look at Saul and say, I see myself in Saul. I just want to do what kind of makes sense. I have to be reasonable. What are those things? And then what are the things that maybe I need to sacrifice or put on the side burner so that I can say, I know what God has called me to do, and that's what I'm going to do, even when it's hard and even when it's inconvenient, because I know the blessings I will experience will be far greater than whatever makes sense to my own mortal mind. Let's pray. Father God, as we, as we look kind of introspectively at our own lives, we just pray that you would help us to be able to, to see and, and, and help take away our ability to avoid the things that are in our lives that may cause us to compromise the calling you've placed on our hearts. Help us, Lord, to have the strength, to have the wisdom and the discernment to be able to identify the things that want to drag us into a different life, a life that may seem more, quote-unquote, reasonable by the rest of the world. And instead... Help us to be able to do the things that are difficult, to do the things that are hard, to do the things that may mean sacrifice or, or uh, in some cases, even a lack of safety, you know, th things that we, we wouldn't logically do on our own. God, we just pray that as we, as we think about our own lives, that you would give us the, give us the things in our hearts to, to, to seal up our hearts against all the insecurities we may have and help us to be able to focus on the blessing that's greater and that's more everlasting and more eternal that you have promised for us. The things that we get to have because of your love and your grace and that we only lack right now due to our own hangups. Help us to get over the things that hold us back and to be a better reflection of your love and of your grace to the rest of this world through our devotion and through our joyful service to a, to a hurting people around us. We pray these things in your son's precious holy name. Amen.